they've been a wreck spiritually. And part of the problem that they were facing, probably the main problem they were facing, is that the king had married a woman that had led him into idol worship. And so he in turn led the nation of Israel into idol worship. And the thing about Israel is that uh, they're a, what you would consider a theocracy. In other words, their idea was that God's in charge and the king was supposed to be an agent of God uh, to rule the people. But he was ruling the people under God. And so when the king went bad, then the nation went bad. And so you got Jezebel, his wife, you got Ahab, who's the king, and then you have the nation of Israel just all messed up. And if you read about the history of Israel, you see that as the king was, so the nation went. And that's just the way it was. And that's partially because of their position as a theocracy. In other words, God's ruling. You know, you think of democracy. Well, yeah, not a democracy. Theocracy. So, uh, if the king was messed up, uh, then that meant that the nation was likely messed up, and that was what was going on here. So, uh, you had all of these prophets, there were 450 prophets of this false god, and Elijah was a prophet of God. He had come on the scene out of nowhere. In other words, we really didn't get a lot of intro on Elijah to read the Bible. In uh, 1 Kings 17, one short chapter before this, you see Elijah coming onto the scene, and he just literally comes out of nowhere. In other words, he, he comes out of the sticks. He says he's a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. And, and that just tells you it's from the middle of nowhere, and he showed up uh, and, and gives a word to the king. But that's who he was. And that's how God called him, and that's how God anointed him. And he did come out of nowhere, and he... Came to give that word to the king, and so he had proclaimed a famine over the land, a, a drought over the land, and that's exactly what had happened. Three and a half years of drought had taken place, and it was at his word and his command that those things had happened. And so, the, the, even after all that time of drought, even after God's servant had spoken, and it was obvious. That he had spoken in power. It was obvious he was speaking with a certain amount of authority, and people were paying the price for what they had done, and and, and not believing, and not and not really following after. And I want you to think about this because I mean, it's going to come up again toward the end of what I'm talking about tonight. But they were convinced. I mean, it's pretty convincing when someone stands up and says it's not going to rain in this land for three years. It will not rain again in this land except at my command. That's what Elijah told him. And so that, that's fairly convincing. You know why? Because it didn't rain. That's why it's convincing. But there's a difference between being convinced and being converted. There are two different things. And, and you run into that, even we run into that in our own lives, that we can be convinced about God. We can be convinced about the Holy Spirit. We can be convinced that God is able. Or we can be convinced that God does certain things, like God heals. Or, or that, that God speaks. Or, or that God delivers. You can be convinced about those things. It's another thing to be converted. It's another thing for your life to be changed and for you to reflect the fact 
that you're convinced about it. Those are two different things. One is, it is like a, a leaps and bounds beyond the other. Because being convinced is one thing, being converted is a totally different thing. And I would imagine that Ahab, in, in, in whatever form he would be convinced in, was convinced that Elijah spoke for God. And that Elijah prophesied. He heard it. He saw it. He was living the famine. He was living in the drought that was prophesied. So, I don't know how much convincing you need, but there it was. Even Jezebel. I don't think Jezebel was under uh, any misconception that Elijah wasn't speaking for God. I mean, I'm sure they were convinced of that, but they certainly, absolutely were not converted because they were continuing on in their own ways. There was something compelling about the way that they were going, something compelling about what they were choosing to do and how they were choosing to live. They kept them from being converted over to what Elijah was saying about his God. They weren't, they weren't willing to be converted. And so Elijah had given the word, and, and so it finally came down to this, that he was going to bring the pagans to trial. Now I want you to think about the condition so that they were all in. The problem was that the people, the king and the queen, had all made a decision that they were trying to reconcile their faith in God, their position with God, the position that they had as God's chosen people. They were trying to reconcile that somehow to Baal. So, in other words, they, they understood, they could read their own history. They could hear their own history. They understood that they were God's chosen people. They were children of Abraham. They understood that. They understood that God had set them apart. They understood that God had, had given them identity as his people. They got that. And what they were trying to do was reconcile that identity as, as God's people, that identity of who they actually were, with the fact that they were worshiping a false god. And the worship of a false god was going on in their land. The worship of a false god was going on everywhere around them. And they were participating in something that was abjectly contradictory to what they had been taught to believe and do. And yet they continued to try to reconcile it. They tried to compromise. And, and you can make this any word you want, and it sounds really nice. Compromise, appease, tolerate. Whatever you want to say it was that they were trying to do. And it's all those things that the world is getting you to try to do. And I hope you can understand me. That there's forces in our world, there's demonic forces in our world that want to get you to compromise. They want to get you to try to reconcile your faith in your God with the God of this world. Whatever his form is, right is today. Whatever it is. But there are demonic forces that will continually try to get you to reconcile those two things in your own life. That's the way it was then. That's the way it's been every day since then. And it's the way it is now. And maybe we don't call it Baal. Maybe we don't have some word like that. But you know what? There's other words for the God of this world. There's other words for the form that the demonic takes in our midst. There's other words for the form that the devil takes in the, in the midst of the world. There's other, there's other words for that. There's other descriptors for that. 
But the fact remains that, that that push to compromise, that push to whatever it is, to appease, to tolerate, to reconcile, if we fall into that trap, leaves us what the Bible describes as double-minded. And that's where the people were. They were double-minded. They knew better, but they made excuses. They, they had really a better understanding of, of who they were than what they were exhibiting, but they, they decided they would, okay, well, why don't we just, you know, take it easy, not be so extreme, not be so, you know, whatever it is they use, whatever word, and, and let's be nice, and let's compromise, and let's appease, and, and let's be tolerant. But it just made them double-minded. And, and if you can't see that going on around us, like I said, this is nothing new. Thousands of years of this happening. In one form or another, thousands of years of this happening. In different places, in different times, thousands of years of this happening. Wherever God's people are, there's always that push to tolerate. And always that push to compromise. And I, and I want you to notice something in it, it's always us, okay? Always us that we need to tolerate, that we need to compromise. Always. Because that's the lie of the devil. And it always has been. And so these people, they have included compromise. And they tolerated, and they, they appeased, they reconciled, and they ended up just being double-minded. So Elijah, seeing that, and seeing that a three-and-a-half-year famine couldn't even shake them out of this dullness, this, this dullness that they were living in, in their minds, their hearts, their spirit, that wouldn't even shake them out. He brings the pagans to trial. They will let's settle this then. You people are obviously not going to make a different decision. You people are obviously not going to go a different direction. You people are obviously not going to take a stand. You people are obviously not going to reject the things you need to reject. You people are obviously not going to turn and give your lives to God the way that He desires you to do it. You're obviously not going to do that, so let's just put it on trial. Let's just, for once and for all, let's just do this. Let's, let's have this showdown. And so he organizes the showdown. And, and you know what? It was a unanimous decision on the other side. It's like, yeah, let's do it. And I don't know if that was just out of arrogance. That they just thought, well, obviously the prophets of Baal are going to prevail. Or if it really is more out of curiosity. Like, well, I wonder who is going to win. I wonder what's going to happen. Yeah, I prefer to think of it as most of the people standing there. Now, maybe some of the hardcore, like, Weirdos like the the priests of Baal and stuff. Maybe they were convinced, but I think most of the people probably just stand like, yeah, let's see what happens. I mean, I think they're pretty open to it, and they really wanted to know and they really wanted to see. And so they said, all right, well, let's see what happens. And so Elijah brings the demonic, these ideas, these practices that they were all, you know, going along with and tolerating and appeasing and compromising with. He said, oh, let's just bring them all to trial and see what happens. 
That's exactly what they did. So here's what the deal was. They, they set up two altars. They, they'd have uh, an animal sacrifice on each altar. And the deal was this. The God who answers by fire, he's the real God. That was the deal. And so they set it up. They set up the altars. And away they went. And so the prophets of Baal, they, they just uh, decided, all right, well, we're going to, we'll go and, uh, you know, let's see if Baal answers by fire. All right, well, they're going to see if he does. So they get to it, and he's not answering. And so when he doesn't answer for a little while, what you begin to see is Elijah starts making fun of him. If you know the story, he's like, well, maybe he doesn't hear you. Maybe he's busy. And he even goes as far as says, maybe he's on the toilet. <laughs> I mean, he went that far, right? <laughs> and he can't hear he's on the toilet or something. And so what happens is, as you see these prophets, and this is the verse that we're looking at, they go nuts. Literally, they go nuts. They get louder and louder. They make more noise. And they, you know, literally, what it says there, it says they, they're in a great voice. And they make more noise. The descriptor of that uh, that's used for the word that's used here is howling. <laughs> howling. Yeah. Howling like a dog. Like a dog. And so they're howling and they're shouting louder. And and what I want you to, to see from this though is that they're very excited. And they're howling and they're shouting and they're they're louder. And I want you to see that they're full of zeal. Okay? They're full of zeal, and they're very enthusiastic about what they're doing. It doesn't make them right, though, does it? Zeal and enthusiasm don't make you right. And they don't make the other person right. It doesn't mean they're telling the truth. It doesn't mean they're living the truth. It doesn't mean they're worshiping the truth. It just means that they're full of enthusiasm and zeal for the wrong thing. And you see that with people sometimes. Say, like, wow, they really believe what they're saying. Like we have some kind of a, a premium on that. Don't put a premium on that. People have believed stupid stuff for a long time. Thousands of years people have believed stupid stuff. And they've been very enthusiastic and full of zeal about it. It doesn't mean it's right. And sometimes it's just really destructive. So don't put a premium on that. Look at history. Just look at history. I mean, the Nazis were pretty enthusiastic. They were full of zeal for what they believed. They were just wrong. Very, very evil and wrong. Do not put a premium on enthusiasm. And say, oh, that proves something. That doesn't prove anything. It just proves somebody's enthusiastic. It just proves they're full of zeal. And all you have to do is look at even modern history, recent history. Look at the news. And you see people excited about stupid things. You see people full of zeal about stupid things. And other people get caught up in their zeal and they get caught up in their excitement. Look, they're all excited. I should be excited too. Don't fall into that. Because maybe there's nothing to be excited about. Maybe what they're excited about is destructive. Or maybe what they're excited about is bringing harm to other people. Or maybe what they're excited about is just dumb. Right? So, so be careful what you, you allow to affect the way you see things. Because just because something seems exciting doesn't mean that it's 
any good. It could be terrible. <laughs> I mean, I've been to concerts before where I'm standing there listening to what the people are doing and they're singing off key. They're, 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 it's terrible. But there's always people there that's really excited about it. Doesn't mean I'm excited about it. Bad singing, bad singing, bad singing flat, you're singing flat. I'm not going to get excited about that. I mean, I know it happens and stuff, but I'm not going to get excited about it. I'm not cheering like it's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. Just because there might be 10,000 people cheering because they don't know any better or whatever. I mean, I was at a show one time. Some of you guys, I think some of you guys were with me at the show. We're watching this guy gets up on stage and... And I mean, this is one of, in just a year before, or two years before that, this guy had gotten on stage and done one of the best stage shows I've ever seen. It was awesome. I mean, it was energetic, it was, it was, it was, I mean, talented, a lot of stuff going on. It was awesome. Light show, sound, special effects, singing was on, the, the music was on, everything was great. Something to cheer about. A couple of years later, the guy broke up with his girlfriend, gets up on stage, it's all dark, and stands up on stage and crying for almost an hour. And I, you think I'm exaggerating, I'm not. That guy was on stage just sobbing and crying, barely singing for about an hour. But you know there were idiots still in the crowd cheering? Like that was the greatest thing they'd ever seen? Now, two years before, I'd have been enjoying them cheering because it was awesome. But you know what? Watching some guy... Of some grown man up on a stage sobbing and crying into a microphone? That's nothing to cheer about. Even if there was 15,000 people cheering for it, it's still nothing to cheer about. So sometimes, I guess, just use a little bit of sense that God gave you. Alright? You can call it discernment, you can call it whatever you want, but when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the things of the Spirit, use a little bit of discernment. Before you jump on a bandwagon for something stupid. Because there's a ton of stupidity out there. Just surf YouTube sometime. No, don't. Don't. <laughs> but you see it. There's a, just a ton of stupidity out there. Mm-hmm. These little bit of discernment. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Let that discerning of spirit, that spiritual gift from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, one of the spiritual gifts is discerning of spirits. Let that, and if you don't have that, pray for it. Pray for that gift and, and let the Holy Spirit guide you through that. Because in this day and age, there's so much deception out there and so many lives flowing. You need it. We need it. We need to, to, to be able to discern between spirits to really understand where something is coming from. To have a check in us from the Holy Spirit says, yeah, don't, don't go down that road. And if you don't operate in that gift, ask God for it. If you earnestly seek, if you earnestly seek the gifts, you're asking for the gifts, He pours the gifts out. And so ask Him for it. See what He might pour into your life about that. And so, they're shouting louder. They're very enthusiastic. And and the reason they were shouting louder was because Elijah made fun of them, right? He drove them to it. He was exposing their folly. 
He was exposing the fact that they were imposters and frauds and fakes. Even though they were very enthusiastic, they were still frauds. Even though that they, they had, uh, you know, they, they were very full of zeal, they were still fakes. And, and they're full of folly. And so they were shouting louder so that, I guess, so that Baal could hear them when he's in the bathroom. <laughs> because that was, that was the idea behind it. And so, and so they responded to what Elijah was saying. Even though he was making fun of him, I don't even know they know. They knew he was making fun of him. Who knows? Maybe they thought, maybe he was in the bathroom. I don't know, but they responded in such a way that it seemed like they believed him. It seemed like they were responding to him in earnest that, well, maybe he doesn't hear you. Shout louder. Okay, we will. And they did. And how silly that seems to us, and yet it was it was so serious to them. And we look at it now, and I think some of the people that were standing there were looking at it then, and they could see, like, this is folly. This is stupid. He just made fun of these guys, and they can't even see it. Now, I know you don't think of people as being the same back then as they are now, but they were, you know, basically. I mean, they didn't have smartphones, but, I mean, they understood sarcasm. They knew when somebody was making fun of somebody and the other person didn't get it. I mean, they understood that. That's human. We all get that. We all understand when that happens. And so, they're probably looking at it like, what's wrong with these guys? He's making fun of them, clearly. (laughs) And they're responding like they believe him. Mm -hmm. That's part of exposing the folly that was going on there. And so then they upped it one. So not only were they shouting louder, not only were they making more noise, not only were they howling with enthusiasm, with enthusiasm they were howling, but then they began to cut themselves. Yeah. Somebody look at uh, Matthew 6, 7. Let's do that before we start talking about cutting ourselves. Matthew 6, 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. All right, now this is Jesus. <laughs> okay, give us some practical advice. And he, he points out two things I want you to hear. One, he tells his followers, he tells his disciples, like, don't do this. Don't, like, what you see here on Mount Carmel, what you see these guys doing, shouting louder. I mean, full of zeal and enthusiasm, but... You know, out of deception, that God can't hear them. And so they're going to yell louder and louder and louder and make more noise and howl. That's what they're going to do. Jesus like, you don't need to do that. And he describes a God who can hear you. He describes a God that doesn't need to go to the toilet. He describes a God that is right with you. You don't need to do those things. And I mean, sometimes we're in worship, we shout, that's alright, that's good. But we're not shouting because he can't hear us. We're shouting because we're excited. And, and that's something different. And then there's, there's all these subtle differences. And, you know, it's kind of funny when you look at pagan religions and you look at the things that people do in these pagan religions, what you see is there's always this shade of truth in it. 
And that's, the, that's how the devil works best. It's when there's a shade of truth. It's not quite true, but it's, you know, that shade of truth. And that's how it works a lot of times. Right from the start, right from Adam and Eve. Did God really say? And then he said something that kind of, there was a part of it that was true, but there was a part of it that wasn't. And there's there, there those kind of things all throughout the scriptures where you see the devil bringing deception. It's part of it that's kind of true, but then there's another part of it that absolutely isn't. And so, there's nothing wrong with showing excitement toward God. There's nothing wrong with expressing our emotions toward God. There's nothing wrong with, a, with expressing ourselves and how we feel and all the rest of those things toward God. But we don't do those things because He can't hear us. We don't do those things because if we shout and we, we get loud enough and we, we do the right things, then, oh, he's more likely to answer. No, we don't believe any of that. See, that's the lie. That's the lie. The shade of truth is, is that, yeah, we can express ourselves to God. And it's okay that we express ourselves to God. And sometimes when we express ourselves to God, we express ourselves in emotional ways. That's the truth. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. It's the motivation that's wrong in this. It's what's driving it that's wrong. It's their expectation of what's been accomplished that's wrong. You see, the shade of truth is there, but the big lie is also there. And so Jesus, when he speaks to it, two things I want you to hear from what Jesus said. He's like, yeah, you don't need to do this stuff. You don't. Your Heavenly Father hears you. And so, don't think you have to yell and babble and, and repeat yourself loudly all the time so that God will hear you. Because that's just not the way that it is. It's not the way that it is. You ever notice kids that are ignored at home yell a lot? <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. They, they will yell in, in inappropriate places. They'll raise their voice because they're so used to not being heard. They feel if they don't raise their voice, no one's ever going to hear them. And and so Jesus is trying to, to speak to that in us. But no, no, God hears you. We hear you. You don't need to do all of these things. Because your Heavenly Father, He hears you. And the other part of what He says there, He says you don't need to do what the pagans do. Right? And, and these are all practices of pagan. They are. Demonically inspired <clears throat> practices of pagan. And we need to see them that way. So self-mutilation, self-inflicted pain and injury. You see, this is a common frenzy that, that the pagans would go into. And, and who are the pagans? They're the Persians. They were pagans. The Syrians were pagans. There are people living in parts of what's now Turkey. Pagans. And, and they would go into these frenzies of yelling and howling and shouting and, and getting louder and louder. Then they begin to cut themselves and self-mutilate with knives and spears causing pain and injury to them. They would cut themselves. Now, there's something weird because this is a perversion. Again, there's a shade of truth in this. 
There is value in human blood, according to the Bible. Okay? But what the Bible says, uh, somebody look at Leviticus 17.11. It'll tell you what the value is in human blood. Leviticus 17.11. The life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. All right. So there's a truth there. And what God said is that there is life in the blood. And so there is value in the blood. And the way God set it up was that he gave animals to his people that there'd be shedding of blood, and through the shedding of the blood of the animal, there'd be atonement that would be made. That's the Old Testament truth. Now, we don't live that way anymore in New Testament sense. We don't have to. But there's a certain element, a certain shade of truth to why they were cutting themselves. Because they understood that there was life in the blood. And so they would mingle their blood with sacrifice and it was a form of, it was a, I don't know how you would say it, it was a delusion of some type of a sacrifice, of human sacrifice. And so they believed that they would be able to please their God, they believed they'd be able to please, please their God by shedding their blood in this form of human sacrifice. So they were right about one thing, and that there's value in the blood. But they're wrong about everything else about it. So that's just not how it works. And yet they were compelled, and they kept being compelled to hurt themselves and to cause pain and injury to themselves. Now, what's the lie of all that? The lie is that self-torture wins divine favor. And that's an absolute lie. It's a delusion. And, and what does that mean to you and me? Well, people still believe that. People still believe that. But it's a lie. People still believe that if they, if they hurt themselves, they cause pain to themselves, that that will win them some kind of divine favor. And they live that way. I mean, we know people like that. We do. And, and they were brought up that way, they were taught that, and that's what they believed. If you've ever seen the movie Luther, when Martin Luther was a, a monk, he, a, he, he was trying to figure out a way, how am I going to get closer to God? How am I going to know God? How am I going to put myself in a position? I mean, he had a hunger inside him to know God. More than he did. I mean, he'd done everything he knew to do. I mean, he was a monk. He'd given up his life. He gave up women. He, he gave up living out in the world. He's living in a monastery. He had a funny haircut. <laughs> I mean, he gave up everything. And he'd given up everything, and he still wasn't where he wanted to be with God. And there's a certain portion of that movie where you see him whipping himself. That's uh, a self-flagellation. You know, and he's doing that 
because he believed somehow that that was going to get him closer to God, that was going to win some kind of divine favor. He wasn't the only monk doing that. Because there's a perversion that tells people that that's really going to help. There's a perversion that tells people, well, that's really going to do the trick. And you know what? He did it, and it didn't do the trick. And he found out that it wasn't that at all. And then there was and a great truth was brought back to the church. A great revelation was brought back to the church through him. And that is salvation. That is right relationship with God, right standing with God, is by faith. It's through grace. And my question is, that was way over 500 years ago. Why are we still talking about this? Yeah. Because there's still part of us, there's still that, that lie, and we're still vulnerable to that lie, and, to, and we're still vulnerable to that delusion that it's in our hands that to win divine favor, and it's not. We still have this delusion that, well, if we abase ourselves enough that he'll love us more, but he doesn't love us more. And abasing ourselves doesn't do anything. And I want you to think of all the ways that you can torture yourself. You know, all the ways that you can hurt yourself. All the ways that you can cause pain and injury to yourself. And if there's any motivation behind that, about anything I'm talking about, that means you need deliverance from that. Your mind needs to be delivered from those lies. Your spirit, your soul needs to be delivered from those kind of lies in your life that are lying to you about what it is to be close to God and how we get close to God. Because again, that, that issue's been settled, man. That revelation has come back to the church. Salvation and in relationship and right standing and righteousness, all of those things are by faith, they're through grace in our life. And all of this self-torture, and all of this self-injury, and all this self-pain is a delusion. It's a pagan lie. And I want you to think about all of these prophets, 450 of them. Yeah, they were cutting themselves. And that lie. That lie. And so, that delusion was all over these guys. And they thought, well, we're going to cut ourselves, and then for sure, Baal will answer. Well, Baal's a devil. Uh, he's just a devil. And, and so, because he's the devil, he just wants to hurt himself. He came to, to lie and steal and kill and destroy. That's what the devil does. And you watch these guys and they're just destroying their own lives for nothing. Because there's not going to be any fire from heaven on their behalf. If you know the story, you know they, 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 they just kept at it, kept at it, kept at it, and no fire came. They got louder and louder, no fire came. They cut themselves, they hurt themselves, no fire came. And then literally, the phrase that's used there says that they were shedding blood upon themselves. Fruitless. 
proven. That's the way the original language reads. How fruitless it was what they were doing. I look at 2 Corinthians 7.10. It brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly, worldly sorrow brings death.
And, you know, I'm convinced we need hope, but you need to walk in hope. You can be convinced you need hope, but you got to walk in hope. And you need to be converted. Something in your life needs to change. Something in your life needs to be different. If you're actually going to walk in hope, you have to be converted. And so, being convinced is not enough. Coming to the conclusion, yeah, oh, he's right in your head, is not enough. Well, I think Jesus was right when he said that. Yeah, he was right. That's not enough. There has to be some type of a conversion that takes place in us. For life to really come about. And so I want to take a few moments, and I just want to pray for us. And I'm not going to belabor this. I just want to pray for us for some real hope. And I mean some real hope. Not just that we agree to that, but I really want to pray that we're converted. That we're changed. And that our life will change based on that. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have something better for us, each one of us. And I want to pray specifically for people here that are self-destructive, that they, they live their lives in self-destructive ways, whether it's alcohol, drugs, relationships, sexuality, where they actually hurt themselves. Jesus, I want to say that, I want to say thank you that you offer us deliverance and you offer us a way out. And so, God, tonight I would pray over us that you would bring a conversion into our lives, that we would be converted toward hope in our life, and that our lives would be reflective of a conversion taking place that actually affects the way we see things, the way we hear things, the way we respond to things. It actually affects what we're doing. That something actually changes in us. Something tangible changes in us as we move forward from this place. we got to speak hope in the heart and lives, not as a, a mental gymnastic, but as something that would change us fundamentally. And we would leave behind the lies of the devil. We leave behind the compromises with the devil. We leave behind the tolerance of the devil. And I pray, Father, that starting here and now, you would fundamentally change us toward life. Thanks, God. Thanks, God. I pray, God, that your word would 
would slay the prophets of Baal in our hearts and our lives. In all of their lives, in all of their hopelessness. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of the faith community, like the community that. Yeah, so a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we we homies. Yeah.